Parshas Noach. We have a couple of related stories, a couple of related accounts. First, we have a brief and somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, terse mention of a character called Nimrod. It's listing something called the Table of Nations, apparently. The, the Torah lists all, all the descendants of Noach. So, Shem, Cham, and Yafes, and from Cham there was Cush. Cush, Yaladis, Nimrod. Nimrod was a Gibar Ba'aretz. Nimrod was mighty. Nimrod, who Hechelios Gibar Ba'aretz, he was the first to be somehow mighty, uh, uniquely mighty Ba'aretz. He was, again, Gibar Tzayed Lefnei Hashem. Another reference to his might, his heroism, he was a Gibar Tzayed Lefnei Hashem. A somewhat uh, curious phrase. He was a Gibar Tzayed, a, a mighty hero who trapped things. Before God, what does before God mean? What exactly is the preposition Lufnei mean in this context? Al-Kaini Amar, it was that, there was actually a saying, Nimrod was such a singular character, there was actually a saying, can Nimrod give Tzayed Lufnei Hashem? When somebody uh, resembled Nimrod in some way, people used to say, he's like Nimrod, give Tzayed Lufnei Hashem. He was a great conqueror, a great empire builder, apparently, Vatihi Reishis Mamlachto Bavel. So he began ruling in Bavel, the Erech, the Akkad, the Chalne, the Eretz Shinar. And then he, that wasn't enough for him. In Eretz Ahi, Yotza Asher, well, Asher, well, Asher left uh, that, that area. But even as Nineveh, that's Rechovos Ir, Be'as Kalach. So he's associated, Asher is associated with Nineveh. And then Resen, by Nineveh, Ben Kalach, Yehayer HaGadola. Another ambiguous pasuk, which was the Er HaGadola? Nineveh, Resen, Kalach, not exactly clear. So we have this, uh, this noteworthy character named Nimrod, who was a Gibar, a Gibar Tzayed Lefnei Hashem. He was a, uh, the stuff of legend, Nimrod Gibar Tzayed Lefnei Hashem. That's virtually the only reference to Nimrod explicitly in Tanakh. He appears once later in Debrayam, I think, Eretz Nimrod, it refers to the land of Nimrod. But the Tanakh, the, the words of the biblical text, tell us almost nothing about who this Nimrod was other than that he was a Gibar Tzayed Lufnei Hashem. The other narrative in the parsha, which as we'll see, Chazal actually linked to, uh, linked to Nimrod, is the story of Migdal Bavel. There was, later in the parsha, there, there was this account of people who built a tower. We'll discuss a little bit later what, uh, what their plan was, what was God's reaction to it. Chazal say that Nimrod led the building of the, building of the tower. But again, Sokim don't mention Nimrod. The virtually the only discussion of Nimrod is this brief one in, in earlier in the Pasha where it says he was an empire builder and he was Gibar Tzayed Lefnasha. Chazal, of course, considered Nimrod to be a, an arch-villain, and the, the nemesis of all that was good at that time, the nemesis of Avram Avinu. Nimrod, according to Chazal, was a, a terrible, terrible person. Chazal identified Talmud Bavli. There are numerous different midrashim, agadic passages in the Talmud, later midrashim, other midrashim, numerous agadic passages in Chazal that uh, limb Nimrod's character as a villain. Chazal, Bavli, and Erevin. Chazal identify him with Amraphel. Amraphel, in next week's parasha, in the story of the Avram's battle against the four kings. So the leader of the four kings, one of the four kings was Amraphel, was, uh, was, was a man named Amraphel. So Chazal, Rav, and Shmuel both say that Amraphel is another name for Nimrod. Which was his name? Was his name Nimrod or Amraphel? Chad Amar, Nimrod Shmo, his real name was Nimrod. Because he gave the order 
he caused Avram to be cast into the flaming furnace because of his iconoclasm, iconoclasm in the early literal sense of smashing idols and refusing to endorse paganism. This, of course, is another famous midrash which does not appear anywhere in the, explicitly in the text. It's referenced in the words Urakastim, mysterious place name. Avram left a place called Urakastim, so there is a very well-known, much-taught, beloved midrash that says that Avram was so committed to monotheism, to his love of Hashem, that he allowed himself to be cast into a flaming furnace rather than get with the program and cooperate with uh, the polytheism and the paganism of his time. So Urkastim means the flame of the Chaldeans, and that was the reference, according to Chazal, to this account of Avram being cast into the furnace. Chazal say that was Nimrod, that was Amraphel, that was... Nimrod was this bad guy, this, uh, this, this villain who, caused, who, who ordered Avram cast into the furnace. Really, his name was Nimrod, and Amraphel was a reference to his order to burn Avram alive. Chadamar, the other way around, his real name was Amraphel. Why was he called Nimrod? Nimrod led a general rebellion against God. He caused the whole world to rebel against God. That was, uh, that was Nimrod's program to get everyone to rebel against God. So both Rav and Shmuel agree Amraphel and Nimrod are the same person, which is a second reference to Nimrod in the Torah, according to this. My father always, uh, always points out, always uh, identifies a, a major principle in the, in the Drash of Chazal, in the Midrash of Chazal, a kind of conservation of biblical, biblical persons. We find two people... One of them is named and one of them is not, even if they're both named, Chazal have an approach. They often identify both people, especially if they share certain characteristics, as being antagonists of Avram or antagonists of Hashem and so on. Chazal often combine them into one person, and this is exactly what Chazal are doing here. They're saying, Nimrod, Torah gives us a couple of sentences about him in Parashas Noach. We have more about Amraphel in next week's Parashas. Nimrod and Amraphel is the same person. And according to one approach, he's called Nimrod, which is from the word of re- root of rebellion, because he caused people to rebel against God. The Pesukim, as we've noted, nowhere indicate clearly that Nimrod was a bad guy. And indeed, there are some Rishonim, the Rodfei Apshat, those who learn Chumash uh, Alpipshat, who actually suggest that Nimrod was not a bad guy. Maybe he was even a good guy. Most famously, Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, of course, is one of the great uh, Rodfei Apshat, and one of those who frequently... Uh, frequently is not all that concerned with uh, Chazal's approach. In this case, he makes, sometimes he explicitly rejects Chazal. In this case, he just makes veiled allusions to Chazal and why he doesn't accept it. First, he says, Nimrod. He says, Don't think we have to be durish the meaning of every name. Don't think we have to analyze everyone's character by figuring out what his name means, sometimes the Torah tells you what a person's name was, Yishmael and Avraham and Sarah and so on, the Shvatim's names, they all had reasons, but if the, if the, if the Chumash doesn't give you a reason, Peleg, Niflagah Haaretz, we'll return to that later, but in general, just because someone had a name, don't start reading too much into it, his name might have been Nimrod, but he seems to be alluding to Chazal, don't get carried away here, don't uh, besmirch Nimrod's name just because his name contains the root for rebellion, that's not enough to uh, blacken his character, we don't know uh, what Nimrod actually means. What does Gibert Zayed mean? He demonstrated human mastery over animals. Laharos, Gvuros, Pnei Adam, Alachayos. He began to show that people were, were the boss, people could rule over the animals. Gibert Zayed. Up till then, I guess, humans were at the mercy of the, of, the, of, of the law of the jungle. Humans were just another animal of the jungle, subject to the depredations of beasts and so on. 
Nimrin says, you know, we're humans, we're, 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 we're going to demonstrate that, that we're superior. That was Gibert Zayat. What does Lefnei Hashem mean? So Chazal understand that Lefnei Hashem means in opposition to God. The Nimrod was some kind of hero or a villain in opposition to God. He, he, led, uh, he led men to oppose God. Ibn Ezra says, no, Lefnei Hashem is like uh, Lefnei Hashem Tataru. Lefnei Hashem doesn't always mean in opposition. Lefnei Hashem can mean uh, in the presence of God, in cooperation with God. What does that mean? Shayabona Mizbachos, he would build altars. Umala Osam Achayos, Hashem, He would offer these animals as karbanos. He would acknowledge God's divinity, God's sovereignty, all of his might. Instead of saying yadi, he would offer sacrifices to Hashem and say that Hashem is the Hashem is the Bareolam or something like that. That is Zu Derachapshat. Derachapshat is Nimrod is not at all a bad guy. Nimrod is a, a hero, a, a mighty man, but who ultimately served God. That is Pshat. V'hadrash derech acheres. Ibn Ezra alludes to the fact that Chazal do not understand like this. Chazal make Nimrod into an archvillain. Ibn Ezra calls that drash, but says this is not derech Pshat. The Ramban, the Ramban is unhappy with Ibn Ezra. The Ramban is often unhappy with Ibn Ezra. The Ramban goes so far as to write in his introduction to his commentary to the Torah, that Rashi, he has great reverence for, he doesn't always agree with Rashi, but Rashi is the low Mishpat HaBachorah, Rashi is the first and foremost of biblical commentaries. With respect to Ibn Ezra, the Ramban says he's going to have Tochachas Megula Ava Mesuteris. He's going to have open reproof, open discord, Ava Mesuteris. He really is fond of Ibn Ezra on some level, but he has a lot to say in criticism of Ibn Ezra, and this is one of the many examples of a, uh, a disagreement he has with Ibn Ezra. The, the Ramban first brings Rashi. Rashi brings the, the, the approach of Chazal that Nimrod, uh, Nimrod marshaled the world in rebellion against God. And the Dar HaFlaga, the Nim, Nim, as, as we'll discuss a little bit later, Nimrod is considered by Chazal to have been the leader of the Dar HaFlaga, the people who uh, tried to build the tower and God which Chazal, as we'll see, Chazal understood that to have been uh, an act of defiance to God, an act of idolatry, an act of belligerence against God, but certainly this is the character of Nimrod, according to Chazal, according to Rashi. And the, and then the, Rashi brings other things. Rashi says that he, when he was Gibert Sayyid, what does it mean, Sayyid? Sayyid means a trapper. So it can mean literally a trapper, someone who trapped animals, but uh, Rashi brings that he was he trapped people, he misled people, he inveigled them into his schemes of rebellion against God and idolatry and general wrongness, theological wrongness. And when it says, people said about others, they're like Nimrod, they meant people who are, who are nefarious, uh, who, who, who are nefarious seducers, who try to manipulate people to rebel against God, we call them Nimrod. Nimrod is the archetype of, is the archetype of people who lead people away from God and lead them astray to oppose God. That, that Nimrod is a Gibert Sayyid, he's a manipulator in a nefarious way, and people who do that, who have that quality, are called Can Nimrod Gibert Sayyid Lefnei Hashem. Yes? So does that mean that the Ebenezer doesn't think Nimrod was part of of the grouping for the Tower of Babel. So, so, that the Tower of Babel had a different meaning. Right, so, so the question is, what is Ibn Ezra's view on the Tower of Babel? We'll get to that soon. The, and the answer is, as we'll see, Ibn Ezra does not believe that the Tower of Babel was so nefarious. As a matter of fact, he believes that great men like Avram Avinu were actually involved in the Tower of Babel. So 
Ebenezer may have believed Nimrod was involved, but he doesn't consider the Tower of Babel either to be a bad thing, and we'll, we'll discuss that soon. So this is the idea of Rashi and Chazal and, and Erevin and Midrash Rabbah and Breshis Rabbah, that Nimrod is a terrible person. I, I have Nimrod is a terrible person? Not just, just not just a terrible person, but a leader, a leader of men. To not just he did personally terrible sins. He was a leader of the of the of the opposing camp, almost like the the devil's party. He, he was a leader of the those who oppose God. He was just uh, altogether a, a terrible opponent of God and of uh, God and Avram and things that were good. Yes. Uh, we've seen an example of Nimrod being a rebel, but in Christian. Um, mythology or Agadot, they speak of the rebellion of the angels, of the, uh, you know, the Nephilim, or things like that. Do we have that in our, in our tradition, that there was, because you, you never hear of that in our tradition, rebellion of the angels against God or something so, like that. So the, the question is that we're talking about Nimrod as a rebel against God, as being of the devil's party, so to speak, the leader of the devil's party. The question is, do we we have the notion of fallen angels, of rebel angels, of angels who oppose God. It's an interesting question. I, I, I remember, I, I wrote about this years ago, the, in the Hertz Chumash. So the Rabbi Hertz was a, was a great scholar, but he was also, he was also had a very apologetic tendency. He, he very much tried to bring Judaism in line with uh, modern, educated, uh, liberal, cultural values of his day, and he, he kind of didn't like the things in Judaism that sounded uh, wild, pre-modern, and uh, generally alien to cultured Europeans. So uh, in the end of Parshas Barashas, we read yesterday, we, we read about the Nephilim, we read about uh, the, the, the Bnei HaElokim, who acted badly. So Hurt said, uh, of course, these do not refer to fallen angels. These people were humans. They were powerful human leaders or princes and noblemen, but of course, they, they, they were not angels. I don't have the exact text in front of me, but he says Judaism has no notion. Judaism has no notion of, uh, of fallen angels. That's a that's a that's a that's a not that, that 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 that's a non-Jewish notion. The truth is that it is actually a uh, there, there actually are well-established, well well-known midrashim that do understand that Judaism has the notion of fallen angels, and that, that particular story is explained by ancient sources at least a thousand years ago. I, I don't have the exact uh, details in front of me, but, but there certainly are those who understand that Judaism does have the notion of, of fallen angels. But uh, yes, yeah, so it, it is a controversial idea. As I said, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Hertz finds it such an, such an, offensive, uh, such, such, such an offensive idea that he, uh, he, he denies that there's such a thing at all. But uh, there are ancient sources for this, and uh, if, if you want, I, I can send you some of, some of my notes on this another time. But, but in the meantime, so Nimrod, according to Chazal, followed by Rashi, is a, uh, is a terrible, uh, terrible villain, a leader, a, vil- a villainous leader. Rashi follows that, and, the, and Ibn Ezra rejects that. Ramban says, Ramban is very unhappy with Ibn Ezra. He says, Rabbi Avram, Pirish Hepoch Enian al Pshuto. Ibn Ezra insists that Pshat is the opposite, that he was a hero who offered Karbanas to Hashem. Eindvar of Nirin, Ramban says, he is wrong, Ibn Ezra is wrong. Humatstik Russia, Ibn Ezra is uh, creating a tzaddik out of a Russia. Rabbosenu Yadu Risho Bekabala. Now, he doesn't make any textual objection to Ibn Ezra, he just says, Chazal knew, Chazal had a tradition that uh, Nimrod was a Russia, even though he, Ramban tacitly admits that the Psukim are not actually clear. 
but he says we should trust Chazal that the we should trust Chazal that the Nimrod was a Russian. Then Ramban goes on and gives his own spin on this, his own interpretation. He says Nimrod was the first, besides being a Russian, Nimrod was the first uh, powerful king. He says until then there weren't really wars, there weren't kings, there were, uh, there were maybe local chieftains, but we didn't have this the, the notion of empire of of despots who ruled over you know, powerful despots. He says. Uh, until Nimrod created this idea of a uh, powerful central, central monarchy and an empire and so on. That was what Nimrod did, and, uh, but also, I guess, he was a bad guy, like Chazal, but the, what the Torah is emphasizing, even though it doesn't stress his sinfulness for some reason, the Torah is stressing his, uh, his innovation of empire. We know, obviously, historically, empires were, by and large, not, uh, not led by, by, by nice people, but... Uh, so, but, but, but putting aside the empire aspect, the, 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 the Ramban is not very happy with the Ben Ezra. Ben Ezra says, Nimrod was a good guy. Ramban says, he's mastic Russia, and we should trust Chazal that he was a, uh, that he was a Russia. Several years ago, my brother-in-law, Rabbi Natanel Wiederblank, wrote an article for Jewish Action. They had a, an issue devoted to the study of Tanakh, different aspects of the study of Tanakh, and Roy Wiederblank discussed the question of red lines in Parashanut. In other words, as we have discussed over the years, as many people have discussed, as we've explained many, many times over the years in our study of Chumash, the study of Pshat is a, is a well-established, entirely legitimate activity. Many, many Rishonim, not just the, the Sfardim like Ibn Ezra, Ashkenaz, even Ashkenazim, even more so Ashkenazim, Rashbam, Rabbi Yosef Shar. Chizkuni, many of the Balitosis spend a lot of time discussing Pshat, even when they know the Chazal explained differently. They, they frequently explain stories in Tanakh, even legal sections in Tanakh. They frequently explain these stories differently from Chazal. That was considered uh, a perfectly legitimate discipline to learn Pshat. So nevertheless, uh, Rabbi Wiederblank was discussing other limits to this. Can you say anything that you want, as long as you accept the, the halacha? Can you, are, you, can you, are you free to say anything you want? So for example, in recent years, people have had all kinds of innovative readings of Akedas uh, Yitzchak, that, God fa- that Abraham failed the test, and, that, uh, and so on. People have said the most uh, outrageous things in the name of Pshat, or in the name of modern ethics applied to Tanakh. Are there any limits at all? My brother-in-law was discussing, are there any limits to, to, to what, what is considered a, a, a legitimate, orthodox, so to speak, Jewish interpretation of Tanakh? Assuming you're willing to grant the, the fundamental principles of faith and the binding nature of the mitzvahs, is there anything that's off limits? So he tried to argue that there is, and he tried, he tried to argue that certain things are considered uh, so central and so, so fundamental to normative Jewish tradition that if you deny them, that's, that's illegitimate, so without getting into explosive terms like heresy, but, you know, but, but certain things are just so alien to the, to the, to the fu- fundamental thread of traditional rabbinic thought that certain ideas are just uh, off-limits, and he tried to argue that this, uh, this point of Ramban is, is making this point, that, that Ramban is arguing that even though he has no solid objection to Ibn Ezra's approach, he he implicitly concedes that the biblical text is equivocal. You could explain Nimrod as a good guy rather than a bad guy. Nevertheless, he says, we have to trust Chazal that, uh, that Nimrod, was, Nimrod was a good guy, a bad guy. Even though Ramban himself frequently explains Psukim, not like Chazal, what was bothering him so much if Ibn Ezra chose to explain Nimrod as a good guy? Why can't that be a legitimate application of the approach of Pshat? So 
Rabbi Wiederblank argues that uh, there are some kind of red lines that uh, you have to accept Chazal on certain basic questions of who's good, who's bad, who are the white hats, who are the black hats. It, it, it's, hard, it's hard to know what to make of this. It's, uh, the Ramban doesn't give us any rule. It, it, it's hard to know what these rules are. To, to, uh, many of them did, 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 did feel like Ibn Ezra, but Ibn Ezra is not the only one. There, there, there are others who apparently uh, side with Ibn Ezra on this issue, and it's... Uh, and then every time the Ramban, criti- Ramban frequently criticizes Ibn Ezra, in many of these cases, there are many we show we'll discuss Migdal Babel soon, that Ibn Ezra disagrees. In, in this case, actually, I'm not sure how the Rishonim line up, how many, how many uh, are on Ibn Ezra's side, but certainly when it comes to Migdal Babel, that we'll see soon, there are many who understand, like Ibn Ezra, that Migdal, differently from Chazal, Migdal Babel was not sinful, it was not a Vodazar, it was not such a bad thing. So it's difficult to know if there are, practically speaking, if there are red lines, what are they? How do you decide them? This, this itself is a very double-edged argument. Ramban may have thought it was. Ibn Ezra obviously thought it wasn't. I mean, and then the, Ramban frequently disagrees with Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra was a great man as well. So it, it's difficult to know what to make of this. But, but, but my brother-in-law's point certainly is noteworthy that, when the, that unlike other cases where Ramban spends a great deal of time arguing that Ibn Ezra's pshat is untenable on the merits and it doesn't fit the biblical text and it has its own difficulties here, Ramban has nothing to say from the biblical text, nothing inherently implausible about Ibn Ezra's approach. His only comment is that the that Chazal knew the Kabbalah, that Nimrod was a bad guy, and we should accept that. How did the Ramban know that Chazal had a Kabbalah? Maybe it was just Chazal learning Chumash. We learn Chumash. Again, it's hard to know. The Ramban doesn't tell us very much. Ramban doesn't tell us how he knows that Chazal had a Kabbalah. All the cases Ramban himself feels free to diverge from Chazal. Maybe Chazal had a Kabbalah there as well. It's hard to know. So it, again, it's very hard to, to create any kind of doctrine out of this, in, in my view. But the, it, it is noteworthy. The Ramban's point seems to be certain things are just too shocking, are just too, uh, too alien to traditional Jewish thought. What Ramban probably means, this is what probably Weirblank is saying, I think, that uh, there are so many midrashim which, uh, which, which univocally, which consistently portray Nimrod as a terrible, terrible villain. It's not like a machlokas. It's not like you found one obscure midrash that makes him into a rasha. It is just completely taken for granted. They, they, affiliate, they associate him with Amraphel and the Kibshon Aish and throwing Avram into the fire. There are just so many midrashim in so many different contexts that all take for granted that Nimrod was a rasha. So the Ramban apparently fails that at some point this is clearly just a, a fundamental assumption of the Jewish tradition, and to say that you disagree, at, at some point, this is just something which is so basic, which is so uh, well attested to in Aramisara, uh, to just go and dismiss it, uh, the Ramban feels, is, is wrong. But again, Ibn Ezra disagreed. Ibn Ezra also knew these midrashim, and Ibn Ezra disagreed. Rabbi, this isn't uh, unique to our tradition. In Paradise Lost, Milton writes about Nimrod, and says that he um, wanted to arrogate dominion undeserved over his brethren and quite dispossess concord and law of nature from the earth hunting and men not beasts shall be his game with war and hostile snare such as refuse subjection to his empire tyrannous a mighty hunter thence shall he be styled before the lord as in despite of heaven or from heaven claiming second sovereignty and from rebellion shall derive his name of rebellion, others he accused. And he goes on and on, but wow. it's like very strong uh, resemblance. So, so, so that's terrific. So, 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 so Milton Especially men, men, not beasts, shall be his game. You know, that right. so, same idea. So, so that's terrific. So, so, he, so he also understands, like Chazal, that Nimrod is from the Hebrew root of rebellion, from Marad yeah. and Mered. Yeah. 
he, he's focusing on, on Nimrod as an empire builder, not maybe as, as an idolater, but he's focusing on Nimrod as a tyrant, as a despot, as someone who subjugates men. I think I saw in the Archbishop Chumash that Bringer of Hirsch also emphasized that the, the evil of Nimrod was, was the obsession with power, with the lust for dominion. For, so I, I, guess, I guess that was... Uh, right, so, I, so I guess that... So, so the, even, even outside the Jewish tradition, apparently there are those who understood the biblical Nimrod to be a villain because of his uh, amorality, because of his, his tyranny. So yes, that, 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 that is, thank you very much. That, that is definitely something uh, worth adding, to, the, worth adding to, to, to my notes on this. I'll have to put that in. Thank you. Rabbi, all of those who claim the negative, like the Ramban, still are troubled with the words of the sentence. So, for instance, the other place where we have Tzayid is obviously Esav. And there it says... Yodea Tzayed, but it doesn't say Lefnei Hashem. Here it has Gibor Tzayed, Gibor being a very positive word. I can't remember any time Gibor is a negative word, and it says Lefnei Hashem. So how do the Mephoshim deal with those words? That's an interesting point. So, so Dr. Schwartz is pointing out that you know, the language of the Pasuk is not just neutral. The language of the Pasuk might even be, might even be argued to be Leaning more toward the more toward the, the idea that Nimrod was a good guy, that Gibor is usually more positive, you know, that uh, Gibor sounds positive. David has Giborim and Gibor Koach. You know, the, the different the Gibor often is has a has a positive connotation. And Lefnei Hashem again, like I said, Lefnei Hashem We daven, we stand Lefnei Hashem, Lefnei Hashem. Also, frequently in, in our Masorah has a more positive connotation. So once again, the argument is that the biblical text, certainly uh, in a vacuum, seems, seems to fit pretty well with Ibn Ezra, and that's why Ibn Ezra is called, uh, is called uh, the, the road for Yapshat, because, because of his sympathies with Pshat. Regarding the connection between, Ibn Ezra, between uh, Nimrod and Esav, they're both hunters. So we've discussed this at length in previous shiurim. The, the Nodi Behuda has, has his epic comment where, where he opposes recreational hunting. He says, hunting is un-Jewish, he says. It's profoundly un-Jewish. The only two hunters that we know are in the Bible are Nimrod and Esau. And that, that's not company you want to be in. Obviously, he's going that Nimrod was a hunter of animals, and, and a, but a bad guy like Chazal, and not, not a good guy, certainly. Um, we also discussed a whole slew of medieval midrashim that, that discussed the connection between Nimrod and Esav, that, that, that Esav killed Nimrod, Nimrod wanted to kill Esav, that they had a rivalry about hunting. Again, the, 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 the Midrashim definitely pick up on the fact that both Esav and Nimrod were hunters. The, the DFU said that Esav is not called Gibar, Esav is called Yudet, so, yeah, so I, I'm not going to get too much, too, I'm not going to follow this path much further tonight about the connection between Esav and Nimrod, but yes, that, that, that is a point worth mentioning that it is remarkable that just a few parashiyas apart, we find two biblical figures who, the, 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 one of the few things we're told about them, about their character, their, their lives, is that they were both great hunters. The, but Tzayid is also an Avalacha for Shabbat. Right. So clearly Jews were doing it. Yeah, so everyone agrees you can hunt for, for, for some practical purpose, for, 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 meat, for meat, for skins, for hide, to, for the Mishkan, they did it. Right, so everyone agrees that Tzayid is something that's not inherently un-Jewish, the, the opposition of many, of many post-Kim is to recreational hunting, hunting because you enjoy it. But uh, anyway, so... There are other important instances where there's a difference between the Pshat and the, and the rabbinical idea. One, one of them is, for example, in the story of, of Eob, where Eob is presented by the Pshat, the, 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 the Chazal seems to criticize Eob much more than the, than, than the, the Pshat seems to do. 
And uh, that's one, one, one instance. And another instance is the story of Cain, where the Chazal seems to be much more critical of Cain than, than, the, than, the, than, the, than the, the shot of the Kadrub seems to be, where he seems to be a more tormented individual. Uh-huh. Right. So, so I, 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 I'm not well versed in Eov, and I, I didn't study the the Kayan story in great depth recently. But, but your, your your general point is certainly true that, that while there are some cases that if we understand Tanakh well, we understand why they said something. They may have they may have developed it much further than the Pesukim, but there are certain cases where Chazal's midrash is in the general in the general spirit of the Pesukim, even though they take it much further. There are other cases where Chazal seem to go in a different direction, which is maybe our case, where we're, we're discussing, and you're bringing up other examples. So yeah, so again, the, the, the study of Pshat and Drush, and when Chazal decided to go in a completely different direction from Pshat, and these are certainly important questions. I, 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 I'm not prepared to discuss the topic in, uh, in, in, all, in all its breadth and systematically at the moment, but yes, there, there are certainly other cases, in, in many cases as well, where we can ask ourselves why Chazal why Chazal decided to go in a certain direction. What, one example that we've discussed previously, another striking example, is when Chazal say that with Yosef and Eshes Potiphar, Yosef was on the verge of giving in until he had uh, an image of his sainted father, uh, saintly father, and decided to, uh, to, to withdraw. So various, various Akronim ask, uh, why say that about Yosef? Yosef is portrayed as a, as, a, as a spiritual hero, as someone who resisted tremendous temptation. Why did Chazal go out of the way to say he almost gave in? So they talk about that. Some say that, that, that that's underscoring his heroism, that he, his passion was so great, and still he resisted. Others have other approaches, but the, yeah, so it's certainly true that there are certainly cases in Chazal where we have to stop and wonder what pushed Chazal to go in a direction so different from the Pshutish Mikra. But, uh, okay, so these are all good questions. And the, yeah, I could say one of the most egregious cases, more so than these, I'd say, is in the Nach. Why did the Chazal so vilify Cyrus the Great, who appears as like nothing but a good guy. So that's, that's another example being raised about about Karash, Cyrus the Great, the, the, the Chazal. Chazal the, the, Frankel is saying Chazal treated him differently from, uh, from, the, from, from the way the Pesukim do. Again, that, that, that's an area of Tanakh I'm not familiar with, and an area of Chazal I'm not familiar with, so I, I have no comment on that either. But yeah, we, we can all think of cases, and I'm, I'm, there, there are certainly cases that are striking, and all these are probably studies in their own right, but, but tonight I, mean, I just want to go back a little bit to uh, spend, spend a few more minutes on Nimrod and the Migdal Bubble story. So I was always fascinated by the fact that Nimrod is apparently a popular name in at least some segments of Israeli society. So intuitively, if Nimrod is, is, is such a Russia and a scoundrel, why would you want to call somebody Nimrod? And in particular, the Gemara actually says you, that you're not supposed to call people by the names of Rishayim so obviously, if Nimrod is uh, not such a bad guy, then uh, by all means, if he was uh, the Benezra's Nimrod, is a perfectly fine, uh, perfectly fine character. So go for it. Call your child Nimrod. So I, 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 I came across, I was just looking around the internet, I came across a couple of discussions by contemporary Israeli rabbis who were asked whether it's appropriate to name a child Nimrod. Rav Shlomo Abiner has an opinion on most things. He was asked whether you should, it's appropriate to call a child Nimrod says, nope, you should not call your child Nimrod. We don't call children by the names of Rishayim. He makes a remarkable note, though he says, there were people in pre-state uh, Palestine who did call their children Nimrod, and he meant, uh, they meant it was aspirational. We shall rebel against the British. So there, there were those who were ardent nationalists, ardent Zionists, who uh, named their children Nimrod, 
as an aspiration to cast off the yoke of British rule. That's fine, Rabbi Narsid. If that's what you mean, you're naming your child Nimrod because you want to rebel against the British as opposed to God, that's great. But uh, Lamaisi says, you know, in, gener- in general, outside those specific circumstances, that Nim- Nimrod, Nimrod is not a good name. Nimrod is not a good name that, uh, to name your child. The, the, editor, the editor of Rabbi Avinar's notes, uh, Mordechai, his name is Rabbi uh, Mordechai Tzion, he brings from Rav Chaim Kanievsky that uh, somebody once called his son Nimrod and someone told him, uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky related the story and a certain rabbi told him, you're going to be punished that your kid will become a Balchuva, he'll, he'll see the light and he'll be from and he'll be embarrassed that you gave him such a terrible name. That'll, and that'll be your part. I'm not sure what the kid did to suffer, to suffer that, but I guess, uh, all right. They bring a similar story that once uh, a certain rabbi learned that his neighbor gave a name to his child Nimrod and uh, when the rabbi met the neighbor, he says, uh, he says, you know, Nimrod is a good name for your child. I hope he rebels against your benighted ways and grows up to be a, uh, to be a uh, proper Jew and I uh, hope he rebels against the, 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 against the misguided uh, attitudes of his parents. All right, so in general, I think Rabbanim, at least the very brief and unscientific sampling that I saw, are opposed to naming your child Nimrod for the obvious reason that Nimrod, as Ramban says, Ibn Ezra aside, Nimrod there is a very strong consensus in traditional rabbinic Judaism that Nimrod is a terrible person, and even Milton agrees, as we saw, so uh, you don't want to name your child somebody like that. But again, you know, in Judaism, there's almost always two sides to anything, and uh, Ben Ezra doesn't think Nimrod is necessarily such a bad guy. So I want to spend a few minutes, though, on discussing Migdal Bavel. As we mentioned, the story of Migdal Bavel in rabbinic literature is connected to Nimrod. Nimrod is considered the leader of the the leader of the Boneh Migdal, and in general, the, the Migdal Babel is considered a terrible Avera. They, they were trying to do a terrible Avera. What was that Avera? So the Psukim are remarkably, are remarkably uh, silent on the nature of this Avera. The Psukim just say they wanted to build a tower. Why did they want to build a tower? They said, uh, they said, let's build a big tower. Ear, Migdal of Rosh Bashamayim, a tower so tall that its head it will be up in the, the, the head of the, the top of the tower will be up in the sky. Nasil and Hushem, it'll be a monument for us. It'll be, uh, it'll be a, a, a towering uh, edifice uh, of our society. Pen Somehow this will prevent us from getting scattered throughout the world. And God said, this is a bad idea. They're, it's going to work. They have Am Echad, Safa Achas Lakulam. They have this tremendous level of cooperation. And it's going to work. They're going to get away with it. I have to stop them. So I'm going to go down and scramble their languages so that they can't build the tower. What was so terrible about this tower? Chazal have the most hair-raising explanations of what they were doing. Uh, some of them says they wanted to, one opinion the Bavli and Sanhedrin is, we'll build a tower, we'll climb up to the heavens, we'll strike God with, with cardumos, with axes, and... Uh, and uh, and uh, we'll strike the heaven with axes so that, so that uh, so the water will flow, that, that, that if Hashem doesn't want to bring rain, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just uh, we'll attack the sky on our own. The Gemara goes on, it rejects that approach, it says that there are other ideas, they wanted to worship a Bodhisattva on the tower, some of them said they want to wage war with God, they, 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 they wanted to fight against God, some of them said, uh, some of them said, they wanted to just live in the heavens. I'm not sure what that was all about, but uh, there, there is a famous idea for Bjarnason Eibshitz having to do with uh, space travel, a launcher for, for space vehicles or something like that. 
But uh, in general, there are various midrashim, the Bavali, Vreshis Rabbah. Vreshis Rabbah talks about they wanted, to, uh, that they, want, they wanted to build this tower and put an Avodazar there and put a sword in the hand of the Avodazar. It'll, uh, it'll be an idol waging war against God. You talk about hubris. The, the, ancients were, the ancients were very, very good at hubris. The, the idea that they were going to build, uh, build, build uh, towering idols that would fight God. This is almost a caricature of villainy, of paganism. To, uh, so Chazal have all these terrible, terrible things that, that, they, that they were going to do. Rashi says, that they, Rashi brings another Midrash, that they were trying to block a flood, that they believed that the floods were, uh, were natural events, that uh, they wanted to shore up the sky. They were rejecting the, the fact that the flood was a god, uh, the flood was a god, uh, god was, was a god-instigated event. So they, so they have all kinds of different ideas of what the hate of the Migdal Babel was, and the, the obvious problem with all of them is that the Torah is remarkably silent about this. The text of the Chumash says nothing about all these grandiose, all these uh, hubristic schemes. The, the Torah is completely silent about all these plans. Ibn Ezra says, the Rod Feyapshat in general say, there was no real sin involved here. They, they were not planning on any kind of war and battle and fighting God and defying God. He says, the whole plan, the whole idea of Migdal Bavel was exactly as the Psukim described. Migdal Bavel they were afraid of getting scattered. They felt that civilization could be most effective, most efficient if civilization was concentrated, if they all lived together. By building a giant central tower, it would act as a, a kind of lodestar for everyone to stay in the same place, for everyone to congregate and live together. This way, uh, you have economies of scale. Humanity can, can, can cooperate and participate and, and, and give each other mutual aid. And this was considered a... They thought this would be a great idea. Ibn Ezra goes on to say, we mentioned earlier, Avram, based on the chronology, he says Avram might have been from the Bonei Hamigdal. He might have been involved in the Bonei Hamigdal because he was alive at that time. Don't be surprised. Noah, Noah and Shem were also around then, he says, because they were still alive at that time. He brings different chronological calculations. I'm not sure why this is so obvious. Just because they were alive hardly means they were involved in the project. When historians study the 20th and 21st century, they will discover a lot of things going on in 20th and 21st century America that I would rather they not assume that I was involved in. And I'm sure we all have things that are going on in our time that we would prefer that people do not assume we were part of just because we were alive in that time. All right, Avram was a leader, maybe. Shame was a leader. Noach was a leader. But Ibn Ezra goes so far as to suggest that the Avram and Shame and Noach were actually involved in building the tower. What was the point of the tower? He says they weren't idiots. Loha Yutipshim. They thought they could actually climb to the sky. The, the ancients you know, may, not have, may not have had all the science we have, but even they knew that that was... I mean, the Greeks have all these myths about people flying into the sky and uh, building, building wings and, uh, and so on. But, but in general, the, the ancients, Ibn Ezra says, weren't, uh, weren't idiots. They didn't think they could actually ascend to the heavens. And so on, he says. He says, what was their plan? The plan was exactly as the Pasuk says. No more and no less. The Pasuk tells us what their plan was. They said, Pen we want to live in one place. We want to uh, build a city, a central city, and build a tower so there can be a, a landmark, a, a, lampo- a, a signpost for their civilization. Everyone should go there. Everyone who traveled out would return, and so on. That's all they wanted. Um, why, why did Hashem oppose them then? If there was no sin, what was Hashem's problem? Ibn Ezra is a little cagey on this. He doesn't really explain. He just says, he says, these builders wanted to stick together and not disperse. Hashem loyats came, behem loyadu. Hashem's plan was different. Hashem did not want that. They didn't know that. It wasn't their fault. But Hashem had a different plan 
for human civilization. What was Hashem's plan and why was it different? Why did Hashem oppose their plan? Sounds like a nice idea to have everyone live together so they can cooperate. What was the, what was the objection? So a number of other Rishonim, the, the Rodfei Apshat, also follow Ibn Ezra's approach that there was not really an element of sin. It was more about uh, differing plans for the development of, of human civilization. Rashbam says, what was the chait? So Rashbam also says that, that Rashbam indicates that there was a chait, although it wasn't something like about Azara. He says, God had said, pru revu God wanted humanity to disperse throughout the world. They had a different idea. They said, penafut. So in a certain sense, they were flouting God's instructions. God had told them, I want you to, uh, to settle and conquer the world. I want you to, to, to settle the whole world. And they said, no, we, we want to stick in one place. So they were wrong. So Hashem said, I'm gonna, that I'm right and you're wrong and I'm gonna, you'll see I'll make things happen my way and not your way. Other Rishonim often say, other Rishonim make a similar point, the Chizkuni, that they, they, they wanted to mevatel what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, milu es therefore Hashem said, I will scatter you across the world. The Ralbag develops this theme in, 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 an, in, an, in an extraordinarily interesting and uh, contemporary direction. The Ralbag follows Ibn Ezra's basic approach that it was not an element of sin, that's why the Torah doesn't single out any sin, and moreover, I think Ralbag and Ibn Ezra are saying, when God sees a sin, God doesn't usually foil the sin, unless he's trying to save an innocent from being hurt. People want to worship idols, God doesn't say, I better stop them from worshiping idols. God says, let them do what they want. And then God punishes them, if, if necessary. But the, the idea that God has to stop them, maybe they'll succeed. Why does God care if they want to worship idols? It's not ideal, but God usually lets people sin and then acts accordingly. Why is there a need to, 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 to block them, to stop them, to intercept them? So the Ralbag follows Ibn Ezra's approach that they wanted to concentrate their whole civilization into one small area. And the reason God was opposed to that is not because there was some element of Avera, because they were flouting his will. The reason God was opposed was because he did not feel that humanity should put all its eggs in one basket. Their one natural disaster, one earthquake, one tidal wave away from mass extinction, extinction of humanity, he says. If all of humans are in one little valley, all concentrated around one city, that's, uh, that, 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 that's not the way to develop human civilization, he says. God said, we have to stop this. This is not the way I want the world to develop. Obviously, God is omnipotent. God could have interfered down the road. He could have, he could have, uh, he could have uh, blunted the typhoon or the earthquake, but God decided to do it this way, apparently. God, instead of, instead of inter- interfering uh, when, the, when the disaster was imminent, God said, this is not the way that uh, humanity should develop. Humanity needs to spread out and cover the whole world, so if something goes wrong in one place, there'll still be humans somewhere else to uh, carry on the human race. The, the very first year we gave, you know, some, uh, some six years ago, I, I, I suggested that this is the argument that uh, many modern uh, visionaries are arguing for space travel. We have to get off the Earth in case uh, something goes really bad, thermonuclear war or something else, asteroids and so on. We need to get off the Earth before something like that happens. You know, some might argue theologically that we shouldn't get off the earth, that, that's a topic for a different time, but, uh, but the basic idea, Al-Bag says, is that God's position was it is not healthy for humanity to have all their, all their eggs in one basket, hailstones, Abnei al-Gavish, Shetaf Mayim, tsunamis, and so on. So therefore, God said, uh, your idea is wrong, it's not sinful, it's, it's not wrong in the mar- morally wrong, but it's wrong in the sense that it is uh, an undesirable way for the, de- for the human race to develop. The, again, the, the Ramban mentions that Chazal understand that it was rebellion and a terrible avera. 
the road to Yapshat disagree, he says, but the, 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 the Ramban criticizes their pshat once again, he says, and he, he doesn't like their pshat, but, 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 but again, the Ramban then has a Kabbalistic approach, but once again, the Ramban says that, that there are road fey who disagree with Chazal, but, the, but, but he sides more with Chazal, or a variation of Chazal, rather than with Pshutosh Mikra. So again, this is the point, with, both with regard to who, who, Ninve wa, who uh, Nimrod was, as well as with regard to what happened in the Dar HaPalaga. So the road fey led by Ibn Ezra, say Nimrod was uh, not necessarily a bad person. The Dar HaPlago was not necessarily a bad group of people. They just had uh, misguided ideas for the development of the human race. And Chazal, in both cases, disagree uh, quite emphatically. Chazal have a very radically different approach. Ninveh was an arch-villain. The Dar HaPlago, Einlem Kelech Lalom Haba, they had mind-bogglingly hubristic ideas of rebelling against God, fighting God, worshipping idols. Once again, it, and once again, the psukim are remarkably silent about all this. That's what leads the Rodfei Apshat to their approach. They say that the psukim mention nothing about sin, so it's entirely reasonable to assume that sin is not the issue here. But once again, Chazal disagree, either because they had a Masera or because they had other considerations which led them to explain the story this way. I'll just conclude by noting that Malbim, who in general is quite traditional and often sides with, usually sides and explains with Chazal, in this particular case, the Malbim has an explanation which is actually quite similar to Ralbad, that there was not really an element of sin here. The, the Malbim explains as follows, that, the, that after the Mabel, after the Mabel, the Hashem, wanted, Hashem wanted people to spread out throughout the whole world. The reason was, not, because, the way, not exactly the way the Ralbad says it, because of physical disaster, striking one place, we'll have another place to, uh, for humanity to survive. He says it was because of moral corruption. If, if, if society degenerates, morally degenerates in one place, the, the rot will be limited to that place, and other cultures will still, uh, will still retain decency and integrity and so on. And that's what he says about the Migdal Bavel as well. He says that they, uh, they wanted to focus, they wanted to focus and centralize all of humanity in one place. That was against the divine will, he says. Hashem wanted, Hashem wanted them to spread out throughout the whole world so that if there was a, uh, a severe moral degeneracy, it should not taint the entire human race. We should preserve, the, we should preserve uh, decency somewhere else. Of course, that kind of argument cuts both ways because if there is the development of monotheism and good religious and moral, uh, moral cultures, that won't spread to the whole world either. So I guess by, by, hedging, your, by hedging risk, you're also hedging, by hedging the downside, you're hedging the upside as well. But I guess, the, I, but I guess Malvin feels somehow that, that, that that's a price worth paying at the risk of the whole, all of humanity being tainted by moral rot is, uh, is a far greater concern than the problem that not everyone will, will learn from Avraham Avinu. Ralbag, I guess, is making a similar point. For physical disasters, the... That, 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 that the cost of having uh, diversity in some cultures won't do as well. Some, some parts of humanity will struggle and will, uh, and will be faced with natural disasters and, won't be, and, and, and others will do better. Better to have some yes and some not than, than, have, than have one culture which might do very, very well but also might do very, very poorly. The, our, our tolerance for, for risk is, great, is, is, is less than our uh, appreciation of the, of the upside, and therefore, and therefore that, that, that's why we buy uh, health insurance, life insurance, and so on, because, uh, because the, the price of the downside is, 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 is a greater price to pay than the, than, the, than the upside that we're losing out on, and therefore 
that was why God wanted humanity to be dispersed, not because, again, there was any element of great sin they were doing, but simply because the, the, the human, their intention in Bavel, their intention to focus all of their society in one place was just not the optimal way for the development of the human race.